Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Please let us know what you think by following and connecting with us on our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Vero, and Tumblr. And don't forget to share the show with your friends and family as well as leave a positive rating on your podcast provider as it helps other people find the show. My name is Wasim Imam Saheb and this is the Wonderful Words Podcast, a show where I get to have conversations with authors about life, their books, their writing and the wonderful world of literature itself. In this episode, I chat to Fiona Melrose, author of two books who spends her life living between two countries, the United Kingdom and South Africa. Fiona's debut novel, Midwinter, which takes place in Suffolk, was one of the very few debut novels longlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction in 2017. While her second novel, Johannesburg, which is a retelling of Virginia Woolf's classic, Mrs. Dalloway, is set in South Africa and takes place on the day that Nelson Mandela's death was announced. And it is this book, Johannesburg, that our conversation is largely about. Please do enjoy. It had been a bad night for nervous dogs. Thunder and rain, terrible and hot, had drenched the city. September's flattened cardboard boxes were wet through. From under his plastic sheet, he already knew this. The corrugated boxes no longer had the sort of spring he associated with the dry night and good sleep. He had been awake for a while, but had only just begun to register that he was back in the world. September felt as if his mind had begun to dispatch messages back to his body from a further, more mountainous geography, messages waylaid. Some days he would leave his garden, walk to his island and set about asking for loose change from morning motorists. A hand would emerge from a car window to deposit a fat five-rand coin into his enamel cup. He would shuffle all along the waiting traffic, blinking, blinking to turn, and only much further down the line would he begin to register the sound, plunk, of the coin hitting the bottom of the cup. What had happened in between, he could not say. Such was the nature of his mind, these long, hot days. And today would be no different, and all the days that followed, one and another and then another. He began to rustle himself to life, for he had work to do. Justice would not wait. Thank you so much for the wonderful reading. How are you today? <laughs> I'm okay with Seam. That's great. That's great. Okay, so I think we'd start off with asking you about your writing process and just the technical aspects of writing itself. And then we'll move on to the novel itself. How's great. That sound? No, that sounds super. Okay, so I, I obviously stalked you previously to this interview <laughs> and we, we, I, we connected on social media, but I've been like preparing. So I've been watching very, obviously not... Like creepily, but I mean like observantly. Observantly, yeah. not creepily. That's yes. great. I but like I, that. But I know it's like when it comes to your writing, you're very prodigious and you're very committed. I mean, you finished the draft of this book in four weeks, I understand. Yeah, yeah, and, first draft. And so I wanted to ask you about that. How did you get to that point? Because I know a lot of authors struggle 
But yeah. you, you just, it's, it's, it's amazing. So, well, Sim, what I would say is I don't recommend it. <laughs> is it? Why would you? I think, I think it's fascinating no. because, you, I mean, the moment you get your first draft finished, I would think Yeah, that's... but it, I mean, that, the way I basically, I do write fast. So, typically what happens is the first draft is very quick, very intuitive. I don't plan at all. So, there's no uh, forward thought in, into what I'm doing. But then it takes me probably another 18 months to unravel what I've written and bring it up to a standard. So, in a way, the first draft is a kind of downloading of information. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hugely intuitive and based on instinct. And then, as I'm writing, what I do is I keep a process journal alongside the book I'm writing. And what I write that concurrently to the novel. And I think what that does is it gives me a space to work things out as I'm writing so that I can, when I'm actually writing the draft, write very, very quickly. Um, but I think people write differently. You know, there's certainly, I would never say that this, this is, is the right way to never, do it. But, but never. I, I, I think it's, I think it's, I love the way that, you, like the way from what you're saying, it, it just makes so much sense. Also because I guess I come from a science background, so that it makes more sense to me to plan. Yes, of but course. I'm, I'm surprised that you said that you let the, the novel itself guide you. So you don't really go into the novel or even your previous novel. Was it, did you have an idea exactly what ha- would happen so, or is it just like whatever happens, happens? I, whatever happens, happens. Um, I tend to start with a first sentence. And once I've got a first sentence, in that first sentence is held the entire novel. Wow. The tone, the texture, the voice, the, the, the DNA. Here's a science background for you. The first <laughs> yes, sentence the holds the DNA for the rest of the novel for me. So once... A first sentence has dropped into my head and it will drop into my head often while you're doing the shopping or something. A voice sounds in my head which is not my voice. Okay, you're leading into my second yeah. question. But yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I was about to say, like, also the novel contains many different perspectives and it's a monologue almost. But what I loved, and we're obviously going into the novel now, but you change perspectives. And so I was wondering, like, and, it, and it's not... It's different from other books because you're actually in the mind of the person. That's what I felt. Like, I felt I was actually oh, thank inhabit- you. Well, that, thank inhabiting you. That's, that's the person. That's a huge compliment. And so, when I... So, I don't know how to explain this like properly, but every sentence structure, I felt like I was in their mind. So, I wasn't judging them based on, you know, what we do judge people on, but I was judging them on from that perspective. This is how they see things. And so, yeah. that's an incredible achievement as well. Like, so, is that... for? In, in terms of midwinter as well, was that how you naturally just write? And how do you get to that perspective? So there are two answers to that. The first is a technical one, and the second is a one of humanity. And I'll start with the technical one. I, I teach creative writing, mm. and I, I always try to teach this to students. The technical aspect is that the point of view you choose is important, and it informs the whole form of the novel. And I think for Johannesburg because I wanted it to take on the structure and the form that was as democratic as possible mm-hmm. I wanted to use as many voices as possible um, obviously this is a misleading title it's mm-hmm. Johannesburg it's not Johannesburg it's a it's a, a white neighborhood in Johannesburg mm-hmm. and the people that inhabit it it's never going to be all of Johannesburg yes. but in order to make it as democratic as possible it was important to have a polyphonic mm structure of multiple voices so that's a technical point around point of view 
The second point, which is one of humanity. Okay, you can state the second point, yeah. The second point, <laughs> which is one of humanity, is, is one of empathy and one of generosity and love towards each and every one of your characters, even if they're a minor walk-on part. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, it's a novelistic point, but it's, it's also a, a point of citizenship in a way. Uh, you mentioned in previous interviews that, I mean, your first novel, Midwinter, was set in Suffolk. Yes. And you were living there at the I time. I was, yeah. And now this novel is set in South Africa and you've moved back, obviously. Yeah, I'm lazy. I'm a lazy writer. I just is look it? out the window. I don't I think, think you're I'll lazy. Just, I'll just write what's out the window. But, but I mean, like, I, don't, I wouldn't ascribe that word to you, especially because you finished a draft within four, four weeks. That's not a lazy writer. But I mean, like... Um, you spoke about how daunting it was to write as a white yes, writer. Yes, hugely. Could you speak to that? Absolutely. And it's, and it's something I still grapple with a little bit. Um, I, I didn't want to write a South African novel. I think I would have rather written any novel other than a South African Why novel. Why that? I think as a white South African, you have to tread carefully and you have to, mm. you have to say, does this book need to exist? Mm. Is this, does it need to be told by me? Yes, yes, I get you. And you have to think, is there something that I have to say about this particular moment or incident or event that is is meaningful and useful and worthwhile? Um, or is it a vanity project? Is mm. it, it... And also, um, Mandela's death is, is used in the novel. And I put that in and then I took it out and I put it in and I took it... And I think you have to be constantly aware of the responsibility you hold, mm -hmm. especially when writing into other cultures, into other genders, into other sexualities, into other everything. You have to be very aware that there's an incredible responsibility in every sentence you write. Doesn't mean I haven't cocked up, let's be honest. Yes. Of course. Yes, yes, so yes, yes, I have yes, my yes. blind spots. People people do. Yes, yes, um, yes. And if somebody says, I feel there's a blind spot here, you have to acknowledge it. Or, or you may choose to disagree, but you have to really think that through and be honest mm. and think, yeah, I think I cocked that up. Or to say, no, I think I did okay, but I could have done better. You know, you need to, you can't be precious about it. You need to know that there is, is yeah, responsibility There's with a that. There's room also for, yeah. Like, yeah I, I admire that about you because I'm noticed in particular with, in regards to South African writers. And I think human beings in general is that we generally, when, we, when it comes to criticism, we automatically respond via the ego and we assume that oh yes you know and i feel like we should allow that room for like oh, hey maybe i didn't absolutely right, i think you, know? you have to when once your book is out in the world you have to be prepared for that it's, it's public property it yes. becomes and readers will every time a reader yes. reads it they are rewriting their reading of it and virginia wolf yes she is the inspiration for this novel talk about Virginia Woolf. Absolutely. So this book is based on Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, which likes Johannesburg, is set on one day in a city and follows various characters around the city on that day. Um, I chose Mrs. Dalloway in a sense because I felt that London after World War I and Johannesburg after apartheid had a lot in common, which you wouldn't initially imagine but that they both seem to be cities grappling with a, an untreated grief there's a, a political psychological rupture to the psyche of the nation to the psyche of the city 
that somehow is never really acknowledged and life is expected to continue as if nothing happened. And yet everywhere in Virginia Woolf's character Septimus and in my character September, there are these individuals who carry very visible physical and emotional scars from the war, from apartheid, from, from their lives. And so that was the immediate obvious connection. Um, and also she's just a writer that has meant so much to me personally. So, so there were so many reasons to use that as a scaffold to write my novel. Write novel. Um, were you not daunted? Because obviously like with classical literature, the moment when you say that your work is based on or inspired by or a recreation of people are automatically going to say like, oh, let's it's not like the original XYZ, you know, were you not like terrified? To... I was, I was terrified. <laughs> um, and it did hold me up a few times to begin with because you do feel very arrogant and think, oh, well, I'll just rewrite Mrs. Dalloway. I mean, who do I think I am really that I can do this? So um, I was daunted, but then um, I, I, at an event in Johannesburg in Melville, I uh, asked a question of the writer Garth Greenwell, who is I really admire as a teacher of writing and as a, a writer. And he said to me, the anxiety of influence is a paternalistic patriarchal construct in the sense that we set authors before us, often men, of course, in this case, Virginia Woolf, not a man, but set them up to be the masters of Everything. Literature. Everything, yeah. yeah, they hold the canon. And then all of us must now pit ourselves against them as the young the young guns against the old masters. And he said, that's not necessary. We, we've moved beyond that. And rather consider yourself as adding to a lineage and paying a homage and being in conversation mm -hmm. in a much more generous and open way. And that was hugely useful to me to hear that from him. And I'm eternally grateful. Well, for me, I've read Mrs. Dalloway and I've also obviously read Johannesburg. And I, I think, I think in my opinion, you've achieved that. I really enjoyed I the novel. I hope so. Like I said, I, I think out of this conversation, I've, there's, the novel is multi-layered. I would say it's deceptive because obviously if you read it, like skim over it, you probably may not pick up things, but I think if you're empathically aware and socially aware, there's so much more that you can glean from it. Like, uh, I'm looking forward to see the duality of the questions and stuff like that. So you mentioned September, and September is attached to an incident that happened in South Africa. Marikana, could you speak to that? Sure. So Marikana, and um, I think maybe the listeners can hear a helicopter going overhead, which feature largely in Marikana and yes, in the novel. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, on, cue, wow, on cue, it's all turned up. Yeah. So, um, so that was an, there's, there's a little sound sound bite of the of the novel for you. Um, <laughs> Marikana was an incident in South Africa, in post-apartheid South Africa, where scores of protesting miners were shot in a massacre by police using live rounds. Um, it was a huge rupture. It was the, the first incident in post-apartheid South Africa where citizens were suppressed with such brutality by a state apparatus. And I think it was shocking in that we all thought those days had gone. Um, and I certainly registered with incredible sorrow and it stuck with me. And that had happened in the year preceding preceding my writing this book. So it was very much in my mind. Was that why you decided to feature it in the book? 
it, it was one of the things, one of the things that writers, I think, need to be alert to. And when I teach writing, I, I certainly mention this to my students. And something Richard Ford always says is, know when you're being worked on. Know when something sticks with you. Know when your hair stands on end. Know when the raw material of your life takes on a kind of elevated status. And that's, that's the material you need to be working with. And certainly Marikana was something I couldn't shake. September, I wonder how you got into that mindset. How did you, like, how did you tap into that? So September for me, so I think what people always say with authors is that all their characters are aspects of themselves. I think very much of Jin and September as the same person. They are the flip side to each other in the sense that she is impossible without him and he is impossible without her, both novelistically in terms of, in terms of structure and, um, and in terms of the form of the novel. But also I think on a, on a, on a I want to say a subconscious level, but in a way a meta-conscious level, that they are two aspects of the same person. And September I think very much embodies a lot of me oh. and he holds a lot of my three in the morning stuff you know i think there's those things that all visit us when we can't sleep at three in the morning okay, yeah, true. Yeah. um so i i actually found him very easy to write in some senses um but again i was a little anxious about the responsibility of writing mm. him and holding and holding his story as a white south african um writing that story i did i did have Reservations. Yeah, I had a lot of reservations and felt the weight of that responsibility a lot as well. Uh, outside of the characters that are featured in the novel, Jen in September, Jen is the protagonist, by the way, who is obviously an homage to Virginia Woolf in some aspects. So her yeah. name is... She's Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway all in one. She's a kind of amalgam. Yeah. Yes, yes. But outside of the characters of of Jin in September, I felt like they were invisible characters in the book as capitalism itself. And September, like it, the relationship to capitalism is like centered around, that character of capitalism is centered around him and the fact that he's a homeless person and he's largely, homeless people are largely invisible in society. We make them invisible as well. And also capitalism makes them visible. And also capitalism shapes our relationship to them as well. In the sense that when Jin and him do interact later on in the novel, the only interaction that they do have is it's sort of capitalistically tinged. And I wanted to, you to perhaps speak about that. Sure. So I think certainly there, there is an awkward interaction between them, which readers will, will get to. It's not, it's not a plot spoiler moment, but... Um, she's not quite sure how, when she finally meets September, she's, she has no way of speaking to him. So she gives him money to thank him for something he's done for her, something quite important. And I think that also it's how we degrade relationships in a way. It's always comes down to money. Mm, um, what am I going to get? Like, yeah. It's get what am I going to get? And what am I going to, I can yeah. pay to make this problem go away. I don't have to deal with homelessness because I can throw money at the problem, make it go away. I never have to look at the structure. I never have to deal with what's underneath. And I think it also lands up being money becomes an emotional currency so that that becomes the only way that we can mediate personal relationships, relationships among citizens. Um, and that's quite damaging to civil society as a, as a whole. And I read a book by Michael Ignatieff, the political thinker, and he wrote a book about 25 years ago, which has really stayed with me. 
called the stranger at the gate and he speaks about what is our obligation to the stranger at the gate? What is our obligation to homeless people? What is our obligation to people at our borders who are desperate and wanting to come? And this is something which is not just applied to South Africa and, and to Johannesburg, it's applied globally, especially with the migrant crisis and increased homelessness from environmental displacement wars and so forth. So I think these are questions hopefully that people will start to grapple with more intensely. Yeah, that's the thing, that's the magic I think about Johannesburg is that there is no direct plot and there isn't anything dramatic, I guess, happening, but it makes you question. It makes you question these human relationships and the yeah. way we treat each other and our relationships to systems itself. Another really, another character that features in the book that's invisible but is there and it's present and lurking in and out, so like capitalism, is racism. Yeah. And I wanted you to perhaps speak to that, the character of racism within the book itself. Sure. So, um, and I guess in society. Yeah, and it's a, I mean that's a that's a very broad, huge mm. sort of thing to take on. And I think the the challenge for the writer is to write about racism without saying, "Hello, here's a book I'm writing about racism." I think I think that's the the struggle. It, and yet I think it's organic to all relationships in South Africa somehow. Mm -hmm. I think I think if you're writing a South African novel, you are taking that on, and you need to be aware of that. And there's no shirking it that's that was the one of the things i was very surprised about the book because i have uh, attempted to read a lot of other white south african writers and they have taken the rainbow nation route and preferred to let's do away with race completely and you can't like you, you can't. Said, you can't it's 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 a dereliction of duty i mean yeah. you can't that's the elephant in the room you can't and that's not to say by the way that i've managed it and that i've pulled it off and then i've 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 done it but you can't not Go there. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. That is just what's true. And you, as you may cock it up, but you can't not go there. There's certain, as a writer, it's your obligation to to go there. You you can't not, and you can't write little fluffy stories set in a neighbourhood and ignore the fact that there are racial tensions and assume that there aren't. I think it's I think it's it's lazy. I think it's lazy writing. <laughs> but doesn't that come to or speak to the fact that people say or love to say or as a species people the majority of us I would say I'm, I'm jumping on a limb here and saying that they love to use that or they adopt the the, the root of I don't see color well I think I think that, and that is a something people say I don't see race I don't see class I don't see gender whatever but I think what needs to be acknowledged is that that itself is a position of privilege. Aren't you lucky you don't have to deal with race on a daily basis? Aren't you lucky you don't have to see class? Aren't you lucky? And I understand that I say that from my position of privilege. I understand that's that's my luck that I, I'm in that position. But I do think you have to at least interrogate it. You have to at least ask the question. And... If you choose to do nothing about that, that's fine, but know that there's consequence for ignoring that. It, and it, you mentioned, you, uh, well, this you're a white woman, you have white privilege, but we all have systems of privilege that we have attachments to that we fall within. Like, I may not be white, but I have male privilege. Even though I'm a gay man, I have male privilege. I have also cisgendered privilege and so forth and so forth. So I, I, I feel like a lot of the time, we as a species, we don't, we don't come to the point that you and I, many people don't come to the point where you and I have where we at least 
asking the question, mm. confronting mm. that, you know. So that's one of the things I loved about the book that it made me question more of my relationship. Oh, was that in it, your intention? At least I wanted to ask the questions. I knew I didn't have the answers. And I think as a novelist, you have to be comfortable with being in the position of not offering the answers. And I think that also allows the readers to insert themselves into the questioning and hopefully affect some kind of change that way. And, and while we're on the topic, I guess, of invisibility, the character of Mercy. Yeah. Mercy is a domestic employee. And again, the again, it, it's a capitalistic. I guess capitalism plays a tinge in how we, we treat people who are domestic employees. And I wanted you to speak. She as well notes that as well in the novel in her monologues in her parts. And I wanted you to perhaps speak to that. To Mercy, yeah. yeah. So Mercy is quite. A, I find her quite an interesting character, and I I sort of think if I met her somewhere, I might not necessarily like her. She does have a bit of a brittle edge, which is also what makes her interesting and fascinating. Um, so Mercy is very interesting in that she's she is the foil to Jin. So Jin is allowed to be a feminist because she has privilege. There is a, there's a being a white feminist is again a position of privilege. Yes. You're saying, well, well, shall I go and have an artist studio and not get married and 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 explore my creativity? You know, which is which is the sort of privilege I've enjoyed. Oh, I'm going to do the I'm going to write novels and you know all of this. Um, what does that mean? What does feminism mean? And I was wanting to interrogate feminism. Mrs. Mrs. Dalloway was Virginia Woolf's, one of her feminist novels. And so I wanted to ask, well, where would this woman be now? What, where is feminism now? And what does it even mean if you are in domestic employment? Women's work is constantly undervalued. And that's why we can all have domestic workers, because women will be paid less. And so in Mercy, I wanted to offer a portrait of a woman who wanted, who wants as much and desires as much as Jin. And yet, what are her options, yes. really? So where Jin asks the Virginia Woolf's famous essay, A Room of One's Own, Jin says, I want a room of my, one, my own. She has a studio of her own. So then Mercy says, I want a room of my own. But what does she ask for? A tiny little kitchen with a little hob where she can make little cakes and biscuits and sell them for extra money. So there is that desire, but I think immediately the extent and the horizon of women's desires are going to be capped by what is financially possible to do with education, to do with that sort of thing. And so Mercy to me is an incredibly strong character. She is. She one of is my favorite yeah, I really I've I feel like she's got a bit of an edge to her and she's she's quite funny and quite snide. She is, she is, she is. And um and she's an incredibly powerful woman, but she is constrained by her financial situation. By the identity and politics, feminism is yeah. meaningless in the absence of access to finance and education and all of these things. Definitely. Let's move on to Neve. Yes. She's, I, I, I was terrified of her. You should be. I was terrified. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was terrified I'm, I'm terrified of Neve because she, for me, she represented the power of parenting, of the position of being a parent. Yeah. She's so terrifying. Like, in the moments where Jin has to interact with her, I'm almost like on my, I'm, it's like she's walking on eggshells. Yeah, um, she is. And, and 
could you speak to that at least? Yeah, so so Neve is another another version of womanhood, which is the, the brittle mother, who is herself entrenched in patriarchal norms. So she subscribes to them. She says you should be a good daughter and, and look pretty and get married and yes, do all of these things yes. and considers her daughter something gin, something of a disappointment and that she hasn't fulfilled these ideals. Never mind she herself has broken with convention by working in the medical profession when no one else did, etc., etc. I hope I have infused her terrifying persona with at least some humanity with the passing of her years and the, the, the reckoning um, and the fact that the, the book is set on the day Nelson Mandela dies and there's something about those big death anniversaries that kind of force you to think, oh, well, am I, where am I in my life and where is the country in its life? And it forces a kind of inward looking and I do think Neve has a sense of time running out and it is her 80th birthday, but at the same time, she is a very strong person. She is. And when we were talking about the book, my friend and I, we were like, it reminded us as an Indian person, I'm not sure about it within the white community, within the Indian community, the power that Indian parents have over their kids yeah. is tantamount to nothing else. So when I felt that terror whenever Jen interacted with me. And so it made me question, you know, what it is to be a parent. Yeah. You know, and again, that's something the book just asks so many questions. What does it mean to be a parent? And also, her relationship, her relationship to love, Neve's relationship to love with regards to Jin and then Juno yeah. made me question so many other things yeah. as well. Like, Juno being the dog, yeah. Yes, Juno being the dog. And it made me question, okay, okay, this is going to be long, but I'm hoping that I make some sense. So throw like, it out there with okay, Steve. <laughs> okay, I'm going to throw it out. So, okay, dogs are very, in pop culture, generally in society, they're very loved pets versus all the other kinds of pets yes and obviously juno's a dog and xyz um neve's love for juno is very unconditional yeah and her love for jin in some levels is conditional it's completely conditional, conditional because yeah jin is not fulfilling the x the tick boxes yes. that neve has set out and it made me question so many things about again a parenting but also do we love dogs more than other types of pet because they upset they the love that they offer is subservient in that they are just willing to give you the control over them and is that that's the question was asked yeah. that was sitting with yeah. me Do you get that's, interesting. that's interesting that's so interesting yeah. yeah it made me sit like are we the love like is love conditional only to how much we can control a human being yes that's interesting that is interesting so i always think so for me juno represents the unencumbered soul. So the dog is this innocent, unencumbered soul who can just flit out the gate and trot off down the road and, and think, well, this is great. I'm having, I'm on an adventure. And there is a sense that, and I'm a, I'm a dog owner and I love my dogs, that we mediate the emotions we cannot confront in life through the animal. So if you think, well, I can't bear to love anyone in life because that would be too painful I will then mediate that through my dogs and love my dogs and they become a buffer okay. and they become a proxy a proxy love in a way and Neve will not be disappointed by her dogs whereas her children will never fail to disappoint her and her life and her husband and her job and her and whatever so it's, it becomes a way of mediating and and I think you're right, kind of controlling 
not so much controlling the dog. It's not so much about controlling, I don't think. It's more about controlling emotion and controlling life and its and its proximity. It's it's a I mean the dog will obviously break her heart if the dog dies before her but it it's it's, it's but that's not something the dog itself can exactly control. exactly yes. it's just yeah. like well that's life it's not because the dog was mean mm. yes so i think it, they i've i've written all sorts of things about the role of dogs in literature oh, it's cool. it's very interesting very cool. it's very interesting yeah but I, I, the thing is i also ask because when i tell people i have a cat they're like oh, but why would you like cats do their own thing and then i was sitting and thinking this morning in fact this actually yeah. came to me this morning i'm sitting and thinking but you know dog and his relationship to dogs and that's what made me question like when people say oh cats are very independent they do their own thing and dogs are more loyal and support and i thought okay you know but what what, but it what is that what is that about yeah. us what about does that us? say yeah and that leads me to another question i have about love and relationships and that leads to peter yeah oh <laughs> yeah oh. peter peter is bless, a lot of things. bless him <laughs> yes he's a lot of things he's a lot of things but i'm not going to tell the readers what it is about Peter but I would say what he made me question again this book is full of questions and Peter made me question and this is a huge generalization but and I'm going to say this because I'm an intersectional feminist but I'm very, skeptic, I'm very skeptical of men largely but it made me question the ability or the capability of men I mean we as a, as a society and as a species we've been groomed and social conditioned in a patriarchal world so it made me question like can men love authentically in a sense where they don't own or possess another human being because in the book he seems to have this innate carnal desire to own and control and possess Jim yeah. in such a way and his misery stems from the fact that she refuses not refuses but she, she doesn't, doesn't let him she doesn't need him yes and that affects and him and she doesn't him. need him and he can't recover from that Yes, he somehow years after their first encounters is still baffled and and angry. He holds a lot of anger resentment, yes, towards her because she doesn't need him. And it's not personal to him, which is also something I think he as a character I explored that he seemed to take it as a personal affront that he wasn't needed, whereas in fact it was that she needed her work more, which is it's not a zero you know it's not one and um i i can't generalize i can't say that's for sure but that was certainly something i wanted to look at in terms of if you are a feminist if you are a woman who chooses to privilege work over relationships or you have to privilege work over relationships i think men are more easily able to say well i'll have both yes they can have both yes whereas women often have to come Choose. down on either yes. side and he is he t- he takes this as a personal affront that she would like to s- she she says i'm going to self actualize my work is everything to me and he years later is still nursing this bitter wound and is unable to recover from it which and there's a kind of ridiculousness in it yes, yes. on the one hand and on the other hand there's something quite i don't want to say terrifying but there's something something quite disturbing about that as it well is. yeah and the thing is like i was actually talked to a lot of colleagues of mine about this like male colleagues and female yeah. colleagues and so forth um, and a lot of the male colleagues agreed with me they 
they were like, yes, this is how we are. This is what we want. This is how we behave. And I, I suspected that. So even when with Peter, he was so difficult. I just annoyed me so much but I just felt he's a tricky one and it just made me question like you know men listening to this I want you to interrogate how you love how you see love you know and is love having possession of someone or is it you know allowing them to be free and well, just, the, yeah I mean there is that expression that's used for in terms of race as well mm-hmm. and I would apply to gender is, is compliance conditional acceptance yes And I think that's, he falls down very heavily on that spectrum of, um, he, he loves Jin and he will do anything for her and, but she needs to comply with the role he has ascribed her. But, but is that love though? Is that love? Well, I, I mean, I, I would say no, but (laughs) you know, I think it's a broad church, his love. Um, and I think that's where I think that's what, that was what I was looking at, and, wow, and just, you I feel know. good. I feel good. Right? I <laughs> you pick that, that up. You pick that, that up. up. You're I a close like reader. You're a close I'm, reader. We'll see. I appreciate that. that. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, let's move on to the main character, Chin. Uh, short for Virginia. Yeah. Or Ginny. I kept in my head when I kept referring. I kept going to Ginny as well yeah. for some strange reason. Uh, it made me uncomfortable that I shared that with me. <laughs> but but um, she's just back. Come back to South Africa. And obviously, she's confronted with all these issues that may be easier, I guess, in New York to avoid. Mm. And I began to question, for me, what made question is, in many ways, Jin, compared to all the other white characters in the novel, she's very socially aware. She's very socially aware in terms of, of the politics of mm. the situation, but at the same time, being present in the atmosphere she finds herself like, oh my God, I don't want to confront this. I don't want to be a part of this. I just want to run away. And so for me, it began, I began asking myself, like, in many ways, it was, it's two, two responses. That first, obviously, the racial response. Like, mm. Is this also how, how white people also see South Africa in the sense that they don't want to confront the issues that the legacy of apartheid and capitalism and the male supremacy is, that they just, the easiest response is just, just run away from the situation. And in this other aspect, it's the human outside of race that responds to escape rather than to, I'm going to try my best to understand what's going on mm. and see how I can effect change within my spaces kind of thing. It's a heavy question, yeah. isn't it? No, I'm just trying to unpack it. I think a lot of, um, I think, so one of the issues is that it's very easy to intellectualize and it's very mm. easy to say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm liberal and I'm this and I'm that and whatever. And if... Of course, everyone must have what they want, whatever. But at the same time, the lived experience is often different. Mm. And the other side of it is, I think that um, certain ideals don't always... It's it's the gap between the ideal and the reality. I think that's what it is. Um, it's also this idea of amnesia, which the concept of the rainbow nation has, has somehow enabled. Mm. It has also sort of allowed yes. for this collective amnesia to take place and perhaps that was necessary for a time I, I can't say I mean it's very easy to say with hindsight but what happens with that is is the unspoken stuff has to go somewhere so where does it go where does where does all the unspoken grief go to where does all the unspoken guilt go to where does all the unspoken hurt go to and the truth is it bubbles under the surface of society and it will come out 
And that is just what's true. It has to go somewhere. Energy doesn't disappear. It has to find an expression. So I think it's a lot of that. I do think it's to do with, and this is, so this is my admission in terms of, of when I came back to live here from Suffolk, is that I was, I was often terrified. There were so many destitute people and I, you stop at a traffic light and there's seven or eight people around your car and everyone needs something. Tap, tap, tap on the window. And I'm thinking, who needs what? What do I do? How do I engage? And it's absolutely overwhelming. And I think what happens over time, and that's why I wrote the book so quickly, is you become numb to it. So sometimes it is a willful exclusion, but sometimes I think it's almost a protective mechanism. And that's not just for white South Africans, that's for everyone. Especially Johannesburg has a, has a kind of edge to it that becomes overwhelming at some point. And I think if you were to absorb every single blow of every destitute person, it I, too, yeah. it's too much and it's you land up being ineffective. Yeah. Um, and that does sound like an excuse. I'm, I'm trying to now think, is, is that just a cheap excuse? I'll have to think about that. But there, you have to choose a level of engagement that becomes, that is useful and not overwhelming. Productive, I guess. Yeah. Productive. And I think, coming back to that, I think, it's because, obviously, again, identity politics. And you can't live in South Africa and ignore it. Yeah. And it's just that we occupy these positions. And I know many people may not like to occupy these positions, but this is the world that we've lived in. And we have to face up to these things, whether we like to or not. Mm. I mean, when I, when I was thinking, of, again, when we go back to Peter and his relationship to love and to women in general, I just kept going back to male culture. Yeah. It's particularly in South Africa, mm. male culture. It's a hyper-masculine it environment. Is. And it made me feel very uncomfortable. It also speaks to, like, all the privileges that exist. Of course. You know? And the people who belong to these privileges. And I guess there's a reason why I asked about gin in terms of a proximity to whiteness and the ability, I guess, to escape, is that I see it also in all the other kinds of privileges. Mm. In in the whole Me Too movement and the yeah. Am I Next movement. Absolutely. In that men would rather escape from yeah. than deal with that. Then deal with it, yeah. yeah. And then in terms of you know, straight privilege versus uh, you know, over homosexuality, yeah. Yeah. straight people would rather escape. Yes, and not deal with it. And and, and and it comes back to that that's the thing that there's the racial aspect in terms of the escapism in terms of where we fall within our identity politics and also the human aspect of we'd rather would not do the work. Yes. And run, of course away. not. Yeah. Of course not. But it's it doesn't a, solve the problem. Yeah, because no, if exactly. it's terms of therapy as well, you have to do the work. You have to have the different yeah. conversations, and especially in terms of South Africa. But if, exactly that, if the nation was on the couch, yeah, and that was a little bit the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was the nation on the couch. It, it was, attempted it, to do it's, that. Yeah, it wanted to be the talking cure. Yeah, but it was that wasn't even the introductory session, yeah. was it? No. So I think there is, in terms of. Um, putting the nation on the couch, there's, there has been a, a, an astonishing silence. It is. There really has. And I think that's um, what I wanted to look at and say, well, what, but what is the consequence for, for a nation, but looking at the city and saying, but there are, there are broken people here. There are broken people. Um, and I don't know what the answer is to that, actually. Yeah. But I think, I, I think you know, that, I'm sort I of... Think, it's, yeah, there is no I think I'm talking around it because I don't. I think I need to almost think. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Perhaps in the next, in another. Perhaps novel. Perhaps in another novel. Come, yeah. Come talking about other yes. novels. Uh, 
I don't know if we should talk about it now but a little bit later, but I came across in other interviews that you already begun work on novels three and four. Yes. Can you tell us anything about so, it? Um, so novel three, I'm trying to finish now. I'm kind of towards the end of novel three. It's taken a very long time. It's been a very difficult novel, uh, technically. Um, and it is a return to Suffolk and a return to Virginia Woolf, weirdly. And some other people thrown in there who readers might recognize. Um, it's it's a story about women. Um, Which is different because Midwinter was a masculine exactly, story. Exactly, a very Suffolk, masculine yes. story. Yeah, so it's a story about women. Um, and again, looking at, at I guess I guess I... I've become a gender writer, and I didn't set out to be a gender writer, but I am, but and it, that is what's true. But it's but but it's like you said, you can't really ignore it. Yeah, it's your it becomes your territory. Well. Yeah, so yeah. midwinter was very much about masculinity. This is about women, um, and then my fourth novel I've actually written. I've got a really solid second draft, I'd say. Wow! So See, ho- is, and you call yourself a lazy writer? <laughs> that is a lie. No, well. Y- Years have passed, we seem years have passed. Um, and so the fourth novel is kind of it's solid, but not there. So that'll take probably another, till the end of the year at least, to okay. sort that out. And that is actually, that is about men. Oh, and yeah. it's about um, a gay relationship. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about yeah. that. But your previous novels now, since you mentioned that the third novel is about Suffolk, you wrote your first novel while you were there. Yes. You wrote South African, uh, the South African novel while you were in South Africa, yeah. but now you're writing... From a distance. Yes, so yeah. what is, what's, how's that changed your writing? Um, I think so. so I, just, I hope it hasn't changed it for the worse. I think what's I've been able to do that... I mean, I'm very familiar with Suffolk, so it's not as if I'm going into a completely different territory. But I do think that's maybe a little bit to do with building confidence as a writer. You think, oh, okay, I can trust my... The reservoir of memory I have to to hold this novel, um, and it is still a home to me, Suffolk. So I do have that kind of tapped in energy. I spend a lot of time there, yeah. so and my family's there, and so it is it is a very comfortable place for me. So we'll see, we'll see I'm if, if readers like it. <laughs> We're recording is during American Black History Month, right? Yes, and it's a political question, by the way. <laughs> I'll brace myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I've noticed online is that a lot of black Americans critique the fact that they say white Americans erase Martin Luther King's politics from who he is and they've created this figure, whatever it is, and they love to quote Martin Luther King. And then with Nelson Mandela, I felt there was a similar kind of thread there where it's, he's become Tata Madiba. But I wonder, do you think in your mind, I know it's a very general question, mm. but obviously within white spaces, I would never be a part of the only white only spaces in many instances. But like, is it the same kind of phenomena happening? If it's a phenomenon, phenomena, but in a sense where do white people understand the politics of Tata Madiba when they say Tata Madiba kind of thing? I, do, I would say I doubt it. I mean, is that awful to say? I, I don't know. Um, I think there is a kind of, but that's his, history has its natural erasures. Erasure, yeah. I think, I think there is that. And I think... Um, he also becomes quite a useful beacon of nostalgia, in a way, and I think people don't always understand the fullness of that ex- of the experience of 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 what that implies. And I often think of that in terms of in terms of Winnie Mandela, who I think acts as a useful counterpoint yes, yes. to expose the the kind of ma- messiah type 
notions attached to Mandela from from the white community is the kind of demonization of Winnie. Mm. Um, and I think I think that's almost kind of a useful way of looking at it. And I think the other thing, I think there was there was a book, and I, I can't remember who wrote it, a non-fiction book, and it had the most awful title, and it was um, it was uh, when when Mandela goes or something. It, it was a sort of speculative non-fiction book on as as if with Mandela dying, somehow the nation would fall apart and return to come some kind of barbarism or savagery. I mean, it was it was the most awful implied racism that that I say implied. I mean, pretty overt that that somehow without this this sort of Messiah white figure. acceptable, you know, acceptable, well-packaged, acceptable figure, the nation will return to barbarism. And it was just the most bizarre notion. And I think I think that kind of persists. Can you give us three novels that you perhaps have an emotional connection with presently at this time? At this time. So I would say, well, I mean, obviously Mrs. Dalloway is just so important to me. Um, and... And will remain. So I first read it when I was 16 and I was so shocked by it. I didn't know such a novel was allowed to be written. And um, that stayed with me. And it, in terms of novels at the moment, um, so the a novel I recently read, which meant a huge amount to me, um, was Derek Jarman, um, his book Modern Nature, which is a s- series of his journals written while he was, um, he's a, for those who don't know, he's a, a film writer and a, and and a sort of erstwhile gardener. He he bought a cottage on a rugged rugged beach under a, some near a nuclear power station, and his his journey of trying to build a garden on this beach, and interweaved with the fact that he knows this he's dying of HIV. So he was, I think the journals start in the eighties during that kind of terrifying time, and it's the most incredibly moving story of a man fighting illness and watching his death come towards him and trying to build a garden that's going to live against the odds on this salty outcrop. Oh, and of himself as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, so it's absolutely extraordinary and filled with rage and incredible tenderness and beauty and some of the most amazing nature writing. And I hold that book very dear to me. There's a lot of nature writing in your own. Yeah, it's important. It's something that, that I respond to very much, the natural world. Um, so I think Derek Jarman's a book that I've been thinking about again a lot. And um, a book that I've reread again recently in which I remember from being a teenager and still such an important book to me is Beloved um, by Toni Morrison. And it is, I remember being terrified and upset. And, you know, when I first read it, it I think it was maybe 15, I'm not quite sure. Um, And that's a book that's really, and I, all my books have a kind of ghost in them. And I think I really, I think that was so formative in my writing and leading me to understand that that other worlds can enter into your novels. The, the experience of, of writing trauma, women's stories. Um, I think it was such a formative book for me. And um, I, I read it again recently and I was struck by how it, it's still gives me the chills in in all the good ways and bad ways um so that i think i would say those three but of course it as you know it changes it changes so, yeah it changes, it changes. you speak to me in a month's time i'll be evangelical about a different book <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's good it's yeah. really changed yeah. growth um with regards to your work now as a career i mean you've you've actually done a lot of interviews previous novel and this novel um 
Is there a question? And I, I've asked this question to many other authors as well. It's the one question I think I go to a lot because uh, when you become, when you, when you're a fan of authors, you go and you see any every kind of interview they've done. And a lot of the times, when I find interviews, that they, they become formulaic. Yeah. And it becomes like, oh, I can almost quote what exactly what my author is going to say. So this is the question that I I hold a lot because I always want to know as an author, is there a question regarding your work? that you wish you were asked by someone either an interview or a fan but it never really came up and you what is the question and what is the answer yeah to so i thought i've thought about this and in a way it's not really one question and and i'm happy to say that you have you have excelled yourself in, in oh, asking these questions yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that is that i think and in fact you've you've done exactly the opposite of what most interviewers do is that they never and authors talk about this. They're like, oh, it's so frustrating. You're never asked about the work. You're always asked about yourself. Oh, tell us, you this, you that, you this. And you're thinking, no, it's the work, it's the work, it's the work. And especially female authors are asked about themselves. Yes, yes. They're not asked about the work. The work yes. You know, and how did, you, how did you write once you had children and all of this sort of nonsense? And you think, well, it, unless it's relevant to the book, why, why is the author having to go through this? Um, so I think for myself, and I know for other authors, it's always wanting to be asked about the work and the process and the quality of the work and, and the nuts and bolts of the work um, and to leave the personal stuff. Not that it's not relevant. Sometimes it is directly relevant, um, but not always. Um, and keep that to a minimum and focus on the work, which you've done. Thank so. you very much. Such, <laughs> such praise. Thank you so much, Fiona. So I'm thrilled by that. Okay. I think it's time now before you love and leave us uh, for the final reading. And I understand it's going to be something about September. It's going to be about September because I hold him very dear. Okay. And um, so I'm just going to write, read from, sorry, not going to write. I'm going to read from sort of the, the beginning to the middle of the book. September had time. He had nowhere to go and no job to get to. He could not work. The pain was too close. Any effort, physical work, would leave him feeling lilting and swaying. And suddenly his whole head would be full of helicopters with their blades whipping and slicing their way through his skull. He watched a newspaper delivery van pull up in front of the building, bundles of grey wrapped in plastic and on the front Mandela in long rows wrapped in plastic and on the headline A Nation Mourns. September sat down on the little wall that ran across the fountains. The clouds skittered across the diamond and across the sun, light and dark, night and day. The city had over time reduced him to mere units of himself, as if he were some ramshackle apartment block at the back end of Hillbrow, a block with only a few windows lit against the evening smog, lights that would be extinguished, one by one. He let the fountain mist him, in what felt like the dew or the kind of rain that leaves the grass covered in globes of light. He sat and felt all the pain in his body recede in the spray and felt too the warmth of the day on his back like God's own hand urging him to life. He closed his eyes and let the fountains baptize him in newness. And as they did, he felt his true name coming back to him. Fiona Melrose, thank you so much. Thank you, Wasim. it's been a joy. Johannesburg is published by Corsair.
You have been listening to the Wonderful Words podcast. You can download this episode as well as other episodes of the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Wasim Imam Sahib. Thank you for listening. Thank you.